Star Wars 7x7 episode 692. Today we wrap up our interview with Cass Sunstein, the author of The World According to Star Wars. Punch it, Chewie. Hi, this is Mike and Joe from the Cantina Cast. And you're listening to Star Wars 7x7, the only daily Star Wars podcast. Hey Rebel Rouser, welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and I hope you enjoyed the first half of our interview with Cass Sunstein yesterday, the author of The World According to Star Wars, Harvard University law professor, the most cited law professor in the U.S. and possibly the world, according to his bio, advisor to various governments and leaders across the world, expert in behavioral economics and public policy, multi-best-selling author, and Star Wars nut, surprise, surprise. Well, maybe not is too strong a phrase, but he certainly does cop to loving the Star Wars movies after having just merely liked them prior to writing the book that grew out of conversations with his son Declan. Of course, we're kind of in the middle of another conversation right now, and that's the conversation that I had with Cass on Tuesday morning, which has been broken up into these two episodes. So let's jump right into where we left off yesterday. One of the questions I want to ask you, which I'll ask you a little bit later, is about if there was any one thing you could change about the Star Wars movies, what would it be and why? And the one thing that I've thought about was wanting to have Anakin start off as being older in the prequels because it would seem to make his relationship with Padme make more sense. But your book actually made me rethink that idea, um, considering the, um, the desperate need to fulfill a mother role in his life and that Padme serves sort of a dual role of being mother and also love interest and that that creates... A, a very compelling psychological dynamic that, unfortunately, I don't know if it was really carried out <laughs> that very well in the execution of things, but you did certainly make me uh, give a lot more thought to that idea that it was actually a good decision on Lucas's part to go younger with Anakin in the first movie. I completely take your point that to have a, a, a kid actor who's uh, a little lovable but also a little silly... Uh, not for, for the fault of the actor, but just any little kid has an adorable quality that uh, makes it more a, a children's movie. And so that maybe it's not clear that that was the right decision, though. Um, I, I don't want to second guess the sainted Lucas. But <laughs> I, I, I take your point. On the, on the Padme thing, I think it's, it is really interesting that when he first meets her, she's not only all older, but a bit of a mother figure and treats him like a, a little boy. And she, he looks up to her as a kind of maternal angel figure and you know, is in love with her in a way that boys typically are with their mothers at certain stages. And then when he meets her as a, a grown uh, person, she says to him something like, you'll always be a little boy to me. And one reading, it's kind of psychologically a little um what a little creepy but also i think interesting <laughs> is that uh he likes that and she likes it too so he, she, she he he falls for my mother figure and the mother figure falls for him which is you know freudian uh uh freudian that's what freud thinks the kids want the boys want mm -hmm. and, and that's um th that's there there's no question that's there and I think one thing, the romance between the two was not Lucas's finest moment. 
but one thing that I think is is good and and, and interesting is that Anakin's you know desperate search for mother figure and also a father figure that's he's looking for them both mm-hmm. that that that, it, that has explains some of the uh, enraged choices that he makes when he's confronted with loss I would agree and I do agree with you that the prequels are generally underrated I, I, I have to say if I come across them on television, I will stop and watch for a while. It's, they are compelling visually. And I think the stories, if you look at the overall arc of them and how they flow, I think they do really well. It's only just in the execution and you note a couple of instances of dialogue in your book that fall flat and there's just no help for it. There's <laughs> no help for it. Yeah, well, they, one thing they do is they take risks. So mm-hmm. the idea of having this underworld in Phantom Menace with uh, these characters with blubbering jaws who look like nothing you've seen before, that's, you know, that's something new. Lucas did not repeat himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to the extent that he did, he also went in directions that were really novel. And the visuals in Attack of the Clones early on that's amazing stuff. I think that that outdoes anything in the original trilogy, the first 15 minutes or so of uh, Attack of the Clones, at least in the speed and realism of the movements. So that's, that's really great. So I, I, do th- I do agree with you. I think they're underrated. And some of the, I think, excessive backlash against The Force Awakens, I think, which I think is a triumph, the the backlash, which has some uh, sense to it, even though, I, as I say, I think it's excessive, is that it, it doesn't take risks. It kind of remakes New Hope. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't have the boldness of Lucas. Lucas showed, showed that boldness basically in every move, movie he made, and that's um, uh, a real tribute to him. I do think that there is now a reassessment of the prequels, I kind of feel happy for Lucas, who uh, I think was quite stung by the reaction uh, to them. But there seems to be a a resurgence of, let's say, not just respect, but also admiration for what he did there. And it inspired this other question that I wanted to ask you about, because you draw a comparison in the book between Martin Luther King Jr. and the Skywalkers, and the idea of what MLK was doing in terms of trying to move the civil rights movement forward, and you label him as being a conservative rebel, with the idea being that he doesn't want to create a rebellion that is an an entirely different world from the world that we were living in at the time, but that he wanted to tie something back to traditional values that we could all share, so there was a continuity between generations. And the tradition that he was able to tie to Martin Luther King had to do with Christianity and the founding of the Constitution, like tying into these broader ideas of humanity, because, of course, you couldn't really tie into the previous couple of hundred years of slavery or anything like that. So he found the angle for it. And what Martin Luther King, who was definitely uh, a Jedi Mm -hmm. uh, and a rebel, uh, did was to say that we are going back to America's deepest values, so he said, if we're wrong, then the Constitution of the United States is wrong. 
he was a backward-looking rebel who spoke for um, not new values, but for the values that were most deeply held by the people against whom he was rebelling. That was Martin Luther King's, on one view, strategy, but on another view, which I think is correct, that was his uh, uh, deepest um, faith. Uh, the rebels in Star Wars are exactly the same. They want to restore the Republic. It's an act of restoration. Uh, it's combating a usurpation. So you can think of two kinds of revolutionaries, uh, those who are saying that we're going to create something wholly new, that the past is a crock, that your society, call it the United States, call it um, the Soviet Union, uh, needs a revolution that kind of tears everything down so that we can build up something novel. That's one kind of uh, revolutionary call. But there's another kind which says that you know, the deepest traditions of the very culture that we're trying to rebel against are terrific, and they've been lost. And what we're trying to do is uh, restore peace and justice to the galaxy. That's Luke, and uh, that, I think, is uh, the civil rights movement as represented by Martin Luther King. And so, in a way, you could also read that as suggesting that when they made The Force Awakens, that J.J. Abrams and Larry Kasdan, as the screenwriters and visionaries of it, almost aligned very well with the you know Martin Luther King example or the Republic example, because they are restoring the trilogies, the Star Wars story, back to the tradition of the original trilogy, which is what... Completely great. That's, yeah. that's a great, beautifully put. So thank you <laughs> for that. I, I think that's correct that they thought, thought that the prequels had gotten too uh, techy. So, you know, with the, uh, the images that are generated by computer technology, uh, they thought that that had a kind of distancing effect and that what we need is a restoration of the Star Wars Republic, so to speak, which has a, a kind of rawness and immediacy and it, it, it's true that if you look at A New Hope or uh, The Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, uh, they, they, they aren't uh, as technically uh, astounding as people became capable of and Lucas was entranced by. And certainly Abrams could have done that, but he wanted it to have uh, uh, a little, be a little retro and succeeded. It has that very lived-in feel that the original trilogy did in the prequel trilogy, and by extension, Star Trek <laughs> doesn't have. That looks like you're you're walking into a uh, gosh, like a, a World's Fair vision of the future kind of set. Uh, completely, and that that I think is part of the charm of the Force Awakens. It is also part of the. You know, not startling originality, let's say, of The Force Awakens. But one reason it, it did great, I think, is that it produced both nostalgia and a sense of recognition and a sense that we're embarking on something that uh, has possibilities that it's uh, fun to speculate about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
So I'd like to take you back to the the beginning of Star Wars because one of the things you try to do in the books is, in the book is quantify how exactly Star Wars became so popular, and you discuss a couple of different angles. One of them I wanted to focus on was the idea of reputational cascades, which, if I were to summarize it very quickly, would it be accurate to say that's kind of like the idea of going along to get along? Yes, and it's, uh, I think, uh, a very powerful explanation with maybe too many syllables in it, but a very powerful explanation <laughs> of why we sometimes get political movements succeeding that astound everyone, or revolutions happening, or uh, books taking off, or singers becoming Taylor Swift, or, or movies. So the idea is that if you see something or like something, uh, it can be that people you care about will like you a little bit more. So if it's the case that you're in a group of people who think that Taylor Swift is great, uh, if you don't know anything about Taylor Swift or don't like Taylor Swift, you, you look like an idiot. By contrast, if you're in a group of people that thinks Taylor, ill of Taylor Swift, I don't know any such group, but probably, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and you say she's great, then you... Uh, you risk a little ostracism. With Star Wars, what happened early on was not only that people loved it, but that they also loved seeing that other people loved it so that they could be a group of people who love Star Wars. So you had a cascade where people saw it and said, it's great, and then other people saw it because they thought it was the first people thought it was great, and they wanted to be seen by their friends as people who also liked it. And then you had what I think we saw for Barack Obama in 2008, and we're seeing now for Donald Trump, and we saw it for the Harry Potter movies, and uh, it, it, it happens for uh, Game of Thrones, where people want to be part of the thing because then they're liked by people by whom they want to be liked. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't like the thing. They often do, and sometimes they love the thing. But their original focus on it had a lot to do with um, being, being part of a group. And Star Wars, if you trace the wildly unanticipated success of A New Hope, it had to do a lot with that, where people were seeing it and other people wanted to see what those people were seeing so that those people would think of them as not outsiders or as weirdos who didn't know anything about Star Wars, but part of an ever-growing flood of people who have since become the human race. So then, that is the also, human race now. Basically, the human race loves Star Wars. <laughs> it was originally just a few people. Right, and so then it becomes sort of a self-reinforcing situation where the desire to be liked by the group and the desire to actually enjoy the movie, like they end up sort of, you know, continuing to reinforce each other. Completely. Now, if the movie wasn't good, then the reputational cascade would uh, dissipate pretty fast. So it had to be good. But if you have that kind of momentum where you want to be part of a group of people whose approval and um, acceptance you like, then 
you're golden as as a as a idea as a movie as a cultural phenomenon and uh smart marketers are are very uh aware of this they say you know everybody is seeing this or everybody's buying this product or everyone is is voting for me that's a way of uh trying to intensify a reputational cascade and while the number of syllables in the word is just too many <laughs> but it's, it but it, it does help account for uh, the startling success of Star Wars, where the, the studio had very little faith in it. The actors thought it was ridiculous. Uh, Lucas, who was kind of on the positive side of everybody, thought it could make as much as the average Disney movie, but he also feared catastrophe. Ironic, by the way, now that Disney owns Star Wars. Right. But he thought it could be, could be like a Disney movie, not a big Disney movie, an average Disney movie. That was his upside view. <laughs> But he he went to Hawaii at the time of release partly because he feared it would be a catastrophe. Didn't want to be in the mainland for a big embarrassment. And so that seems to be the inflection point of the mystery of Star Wars is the fact that the the internal reputational cascade for the movie was very negative. The fact that many studio executives didn't like it, and as you recount in the book, that early screenings for the um, for the movie studio went very badly, and that Harrison Ford and Anthony Daniels were both speaking derisively of it. And you would think, as as interconnected as as some industries are, and maybe it's just our looking back perspective now at the way media is intertwined. Maybe that's a, it's a different animal than it was back then. But you would think some of that, um, that word of mouth would have gotten to film critics and that film critics would have fallen in line with this potential reputation, this reputational cascade that was going on. But it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that film critics pretty much went all on board with it. It's a great point. So if there's kind of transparency between the studio's internal view and the views of the critics, then the studio's negativity could uh, um, contaminate the, the critics. I think the studio did a good job of um, seeming more upbeat about the prospects for the movie than they actually felt. And so when the movie was released, people didn't think uh, Fox just has no faith in this, but instead thought, here's a very unusual movie. Uh, let's see what happens. And the critics were dazzled by it early on. So that is a tribute, I think, to the uh, the happy fact that if you produce an amazing product, you dramatically increase it, the chances that it's going to be popular. Yeah, you don't guarantee it. So Star Wars needed some of the things we've been talking about. It needed uh, echo chambers in which people got excited and talked to each other and created cascade effects. Uh, but it also needed to be really good. So if it hadn't had what the studio didn't see, Steven Spielberg, by the way, did see it. He was one of the very few. Mm -hmm. He said to Lucas, uh, this is the greatest movie ever made. Um, uh, 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 an independent thinker, Spielberg, uh, but there weren't, there weren't very many. The critics, I think to their credit, they, saw, they did see it with fresh eyes. And, that, and you see the opening scene, and maybe more now than at the time, but even at the time, uh, audiences uh, cheered. 
And I think if you see the opening scene with the huge ship, one of the things that makes you cheer is it's almost like a joke. Uh, Lucas is playing with you. He's saying, you know, look at this. And as it gets keeps keeps on the screen, it seems like it's there for ten minutes. It's there for less than a minute, I think. But it's big, and it's so much. It's not like anything you've seen before. And the the critics, as well as the audience, thought, you know, the nineteen seventies version of OMG. Mm-hmm. Absolutely so. And so maybe that makes Charlie Lippincott sort of a linchpin in this whole situation. You tell the story about how he was going around trying to convince as many movie theaters as possible to actually carry the movie, even though it only ended up being a few dozen. He was still almost essentially the first follower. Like the idea that when you see, uh, and there's a a great explanation of this by Derek Sivers, where there's a video that he has out where you see a person just dancing at a concert and dancing in very strangely, and he's the only one doing it. But then another person comes along and follows in, and that's the first follower. And that person makes the idea of dancing along at this concert when nobody else is an okay thing to do. And then eventually you get through some early adopters who follow that first follower, and then you get the late adopters, and it's almost like a product life cycle situation. So Charlie could almost be a first follower in a sense. Yeah, completely. So, you know, if you go outside in a place where there are about 20 or 30 people in the next few days and you look up in the sky with amazement, uh, there's a good chance that someone else is going to look up in the sky with amazement. And then if there are two of you, uh, there's a a better chance now that a third is going to do it. And you might be able to get 20 or 30 people looking up in the sky with amazement, especially if the first person points. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Lippincott was uh, possibly indispensable to the success of Star Wars because the, just like the studio had no faith in it, the early theaters weren't interested in it and Fox had to fight hard to get it on some screens. They even had to threaten not to allow them to show uh, the mostly forgotten movie called The Other Side of Midnight, which was supposed to be their big blockbuster. Uh, Fox said, we won't let you show that if you don't give it, let us, let us show, if you don't show Star Wars. Lippincott really pressed hard on the theaters to show Star Wars. And he got it in some places where there were pretty big and influential audiences, which were like the first person staring up and going, wow. Uh, if he hadn't been there and been so, so successful, uh, there's a reasonable question whether Star Wars would have become uh, what it did. This is a very lucky thing. And I think you do a tremendous job of trying to quantify the success of Star Wars and how it became as big as it did, especially when ultimately it does feel like it's lightning in a bottle in a way. I mean, how many different things came out during the 70s and 80s that continue to be mined by movie studios and television studios, mainstream media, for nostalgia value, for bringing you know, adults back to a time that they were deeply invested in as kids and hoping to get them to share things with their kids, and yet Star Wars succeeds above all of them. No question. No question. And it's partly, I think, because of some of the things we've discussed, and Lucas is both visual imagination and ability to tap into multiple myths and religions and not only to modernize them but to give them this uh, big twist in terms of uh, freedom of choice. That That's a big part of it. 
but also the fact that it uh, caught a wave that's getting getting bigger and bigger. There's another question I had wanted to ask you as well about mass media, and I wondered if this is something that came up in your research. But in talking about the background of Lucas creating Star Wars, you know, the influences that were going on, um, you mentioned the fact that uh, the Frost-Nixon interviews were happening, and also this was happening against the backdrop of Vietnam, our first televised war, and that all of these were influential things. But the fact that mass media has almost no appearance in the Star Wars movies at all is rather surprising considering the stew in which George Lucas was was boiling for all intents and purposes. Do you have any thoughts about why mass media doesn't play any role in the Star Wars movies? I do. Uh, Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I think was not the original inspiration for A New Hope, but ended up having a very large impact on how Lucas constructed the narrative. And what Campbell argued, probably wrongly, but with a grain of truth, is that there may be more than a grain of truth, is that there's a monomyth, a single myth, which unifies many religions and cultures, or all of the big ones, and it has to do with the hero's journey, which has identifiable steps on it where the hero is called, the hero declines the call, the hero is convinced to take the call, the hero encounters an older figure who is a, a mentor of sorts, and we can go on, and if, if we went on, you'd basically hear the tale of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke was really influenced by that, and that is has nothing to do with mass media or journalists or, uh, you know, uh, PBS interviews. Uh, It's basically uh, a core tale whose universality has to do with, I think, themes about where uh, human minds go and childhoods and mothers and fathers. The hero's journey really is, uh, basically, if you think of your own life, whoever you are, it's your tale too. And Lucas completely aware of that. And that was uh, going to create something that transcended mass media and that didn't really engage with it. Okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> it, I mean, it still does seem a bit unusual, though, all things considered. But, uh, yes, but I think your, your, your logic to it is absolutely sound. And, and I, I'm actually surprised, too, though... By hearing that, that even more so that mass media doesn't appear in the prequels then as a result, because the prequels are not really so blatantly hero's journey as compared to the original trilogy. It's more about uh, republics and empires and how democracy evolves into tyranny or how it can be given that little shove that pushes it in the right direction for tyranny to become possible. And certainly media can play a role in that. And when you think about the time period in which Lucas was working on the prequel trilogy, um, 1999, when The Phantom Menace comes out, we're going through the impeachment trials of Bill Clinton, not too long before that. And in 2002, we're dealing with the um, the bombing of the World Trade Center and going, you know, getting ready to go to Iraq. In 2005, after Iraq and things starting to unravel with the question of whether weapons of mass destruction were really there and that sort of thing, and the um, and the re-election with John Kerry that then got contested in Ohio. So there are all these other influences in in Lucas's realm, and yet again, media plays no role. Uh, you're right. It's 
it's it's it's it is a bit of a puzzle. You're complete, completely right. I think that if you think of uh, how to do the prequels, if there were mass media in them, it would be challenging to do it in a way that didn't seem a little bit time bound or hokey. Mm-hmm. So, so if you have journalists, for example, covering uh, uh, the rise of the empire or people interviewing uh, political actors involved. I think it would be very difficult to make that work rather than looking like uh, an old movie or a Watergate-ish movie or a different kind of movie. Mm -hmm. So so it it would seem to make it a little bit more like our time. It it would be challenging to do that. Yeah, and it would be probably very expositional in nature, the idea of having a journalist interviewing a politician, for example, after a certain Senate action, that it doesn't really necessarily com- create compelling story, per se. Yeah. It, 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 you can do a movie about the mass media, but it would take a certain kind of what focus that I think is very different from both Lucas and Abrams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if if you're going to do something that involves mass media, you actually have to make it about mass media. I think so. I do think so. Well, Cass, thank you so much for all the time that you've spent with us. I do have one other question, which I did mention that I was going to hit you with earlier in the interview here. And it's this one. We ask this of every guest that we have on the show. If there's one thing that you could change about any or all of the Star Wars movies, and we we absolutely exclude special edition stuff because if you love the originals as they were originally presented, then you've undoubtedly got something in mind that he changed in the special edition <laughs> that you would want to fix. So we exclude those from this conversation. But if there's one thing you could change about any or all of them, what would it be? I'd have someone uh, like Jen Garner play Padme. That's the one thing I'd do. Interesting. Okay. Someone uh, taller and more natural uh, and uh, just better. A a great Padme would have done wonders for the the prequels. And you think that she would have been able to carry off the dialogue that Lucas wrote as well? Well, maybe she would have pulled a little bit of a Harrison Ford and mm. redone dialogue. Okay. And actually improvised with it a bit? Yeah, yeah one would hope. Uh, to all accounts, Jennifer Garner is a, a very sharp uh, person. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what I would hope. All right. Well... Thank you very much for all your time at this interview. And the book is The World According to Star Wars. It comes out on May 31st. That's right, I believe? That's correct. And will be in bookstores everywhere as well as your favorite online booksellers, Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all those fun places. And Cass, where should people connect with you to find out more about what you do in this world and also what you do with Star Wars in particular? Well, I'm always reachable by email at c-s-u-n-s-t-e-i at gmail.com. And uh, if you put my name in one of those bookstore search engines, uh, you'll find a bunch of books. But the one I would recommend is called The World According to Star Wars. 
<laughs> and I recommend it too. It's very light reading, and I mean that in the best way possible, considering that you are, of course, who you are. You're a you know university law professor specializing in constitutional law. There was certainly the possibility that this could have been a very heavy read, and you dispense with some of the very academic topics very lightly, very deftly, and in language that is easily accessible. So I really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it to our listeners, too. Thank you so much. It was a labor of love. All right, that's going to do it for my conversation with Cass Sunstein, the author of The World According to Star Wars. And if you like these long-form interviews, obviously we usually are closer to seven minutes than 27 or more. But if you're liking these long-form interviews and you'd like to see more of them in Star Wars 7x7, then please let me know in the comments of the blog post for the show's episode at sw7x7.com or chime in on Facebook or Twitter and let us know. The links to those channels are on our website as well. Hey Rebel Rouser, you're listening to this podcast, maybe you'd like to listen to a Star Wars story too. Luckily we've got just the thing for you. We've partnered with Audible to give you a free download and a free 30-day trial of their awesome service. All you gotta do is go to audibletrial.com SW7X7 to sign up and get your free download. They've got dozens of Star Wars titles, anything you want to do to explore that galaxy far, far away. One more time for you, audibletrial.com SW7X7. Okay, we can't call it a day until we've done a trivia question. Red Squad, Blue Squad, take my lead. I'm on it. You got your deal. Last time we asked you what Ray does with the parts she scavenges to make their resale value better for Unkar Plett, and that is she cleans them up at a washing station. Today's question, a little tougher one for you, what is the name of the treaty that the Republic signed with the Empire to officially cease hostilities after Return of the Jedi? Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before your head gets stuck on a battle droid body, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And if the show's been worth your time, please support us at patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a series of bad puns, it's Destiny Unleashed. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2016 Star Wars 7 We hope you love it.